Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log Supplemental, number one. The one with Rod Roddenberry. Welcome and bienvenue. Welcome to the first ever supplemental podcast of Mission Log. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. You know, sometimes there's way too much Trek for just one show. And we decided that from time to time, it might be a good idea to take the opportunity to dive a little deeper into all that is Star Trek. So, Ken, you and I, and uh, this guy named Rod, who we'll introduce in a moment, we came up with this idea that we should... uh, we should create a supplemental podcast, and this is where we're going to have interviews and uh, feedback from our listeners. Uh, what else? There's no format, is there? We get to do whatever we want. I'm not even sure we're doing a show right now. That's how no format is. <laughs> no, it's kind of cool because, I mean, here, there's a thing, and I don't know if people have picked up on it. I hope they have, but maybe they haven't. I don't know. Where we try to keep the, the regular mission log stuff kind of timeless. And mm-hmm. so here we can say, boy, that thing that happened last week, huh? You know, or right. something along those lines. And, of course, as you said, we can have really uh, super guests. I know we've got some uh, really super guests uh, scheduled and Rod. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is is he on the line, by the way? He is. Uh, Rod, please state your name. Uh, my name is Eugene Wesley Roddenberry. However, my nickname is Rod. That name came from my dad uh, in World War II. His nickname was Rod, and he, for some reason, didn't want to call me Eugene or Wesley. Okay, and and what did your dad do? My dad, uh, he created a TV show, um, uh, some sci-fi show out there. I'm trying to remember which one it was. Star Wars. You're kidding me. I'm the biggest fan. I'm the biggest fan of Lost in Space. So um, (laughs) it's an honor. See, I was huge into Earth Final Conflict. uh, There you go. Wow. Now, Now you're being obscure. (laughs) <laughs> um, my father was Gene Roddenberry. He uh, created Star Trek back in 1966. Well, actually, many years before that, he came up with the concept. But, of course, it first aired in 66. Let's just think about that for a second now. So uh, this is a, uh, you know, a second, arguably a third generation now after that. This is 48 years since your father came up with Star Trek uh, and, and wrote The Cage. And here we are still talking about it, pondering it, going over all the heady intellectual stuff, the philosophical issues and morals and messages. That's pretty remarkable. I'm surprised it's it's taken me this long to to try to figure it out. Uh, Can you tell us why that is? Well, you know, I... I, um... I, as a kid, I, I was kind of rebellious, you know, I, I was interested more in like Starsky and Hutch and Knight Rider and those kinds of shows, you know, I, I'd seen Star Trek on TV, but it was this old 60s show and it was, it was, I mean, to be honest, it was uh, probably too intellectual for me as a, as a kid. And in some ways, I think it's too intellectual for me today as an adult, um, <laughs> but uh it wasn't my cup of tea. So I was rebellious senior, did my own thing. And uh, it sadly wasn't until my father passed away when I was 17 that I think to some degree I was, uh, that experience opened me up to who is this man and what is this thing called Star Trek. Again, not to be, not to say I didn't know anything, but I really didn't start digging or trying to find out what it was. And I didn't really realize what it was in terms of it being more than just science fiction until after he passed away. 
I, I think I can speak for Ken on this as well. I mean, you, well, you tell me, Ken, if I am or not. Um, but you kind of you came up with this idea. You said, "Well, let's do this podcast and let's explore all these issues." And uh, you're really enthusiastic about it. Uh, why aren't you on the show? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have you here like this. But <laughs> why aren't you on the regular show? He's saying he's sick of me, Rod. You hear I, it, I, don't you? I think he is. Yeah, I think he is. <laughs> no, seriously, Rod, why won't you be on the show? Please, come on, be on the show. It'd be so much better. <laughs> I got to take a break, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I got to be honest. I mean, I, I don't think I'm that entertaining. Uh, the truth is, and I don't mean to put myself down. Listen, I, there's things I know, and there's things I don't know. And uh, I watch the original series, and you know what? I, I, I think about it. It makes me think a bit. It makes me you know, contemplate some of the, the metaphors and, and subtext. But I, I don't consider myself um, someone who's skilled or that knowledgeable in discussing them with someone. So, so when the original concept for this, this podcast came up, you know, I knew I needed at least two people who could do that. And uh, I, I know we're going to get to this, but John, Ken, you were those guys. For, from moment one, you were the first choice. Oh, see, I'm embarrassed Aww. now. No, no, you see, you, no. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have asked the question if I had known that that was going to be the answer. <laughs> Because that's just you know. Uh, anyway, please continue. I'm I'm just going to sit here and blush. <laughs> well, no, I, but I do enjoy talking Star Trek, but more Roddenberry, more my father, and more uh, not really directed towards episodes, but more in a general way. So that being said, then I, I think we ought to let our listeners in a little bit on how we do this show because. Even though you're not on regularly, we'll do this sort of supplemental thing with you and with other people from time to time. Um, you are involved in the show very much. Um, I, I, I think so. I mean, you guys really you really carry, carry a lot of the load. Uh, you guys are the ones you know that are really watching the episodes over and over, taking notes on them. And from time to time, absolutely. I'm always watching the episodes, but uh, I, I wouldn't say I watch them over and over. And you know, every now and then I'll send you guys some notes on some things that I think are key points, obviously. But other than that, I think what you guys are doing is, is phenomenal. And again, you, you, I, I, God, this comes out so wrong. I thought of you. I chose you. I, I wanted you guys because of your, your ability to dissect and look within um, each episode. And I think that we, we share that uh, that point of view on life. And I know the way that you guys critically analyze the show is the same way I would want to. So what is so. it that you're hoping that we're going to pull out for people? I mean, when this is all done, because it, both John and I have said this in different talks that we've had with people about this. I mean, it is wonderful. And thanks, <laughs> yeah, for, thanks. For, for, for making us part of this show. But seriously, this is something that I used to do on my own anyway. And, you know, anybody who was either fortunate or unfortunate enough to be caught watching an episode <laughs> of Star Trek with me. But now you, 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 whether it had been us or somebody else or you or, you know, whatever, had this idea. It's not like you just, you know, I want to watch Star Trek and see what I think. You said, I want this show and I want to put this show out there for people. Okay, so, so what is it you're hoping that people uh, will get from, from what's happening here? Well, there's, there's many layers to that onion, to that question. Um, you know, there, you just said it. One of them is the fact that, you know, I think most people who watch Star Trek, whether it's the original series, Next Gen or Beyond, you know, kind of like to geek out afterwards with their family or their, their friends or their relatives and kind of discuss 
what the key points of the uh, of the episode were. So so that's the fun part. I kind of want to bring that back out because I think that's fun with with any show almost. Um, but the the part that that I'm really in it for is you know. I grew up my whole life hearing how Star Trek had touched people's lives, how there were so many messages in it. And yeah, when I went back and watched the episodes, I, I, could, I could connect with a number of them, but I was really curious. There's so many people that have been so inspired by it. I really wanted to sort of get at the heart of what it was that inspired them. And so this is sort of my, my hope is this is a way to do that again with everyone out there and give them perhaps a perspective they didn't consider, as well as discover some that maybe people already have discovered. But, but it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity for me to gain that information through you guys, if that makes any sense at all. What's the, what's the... I know this happens to you all the time because I was actually present a couple of times when it did happen. People come up and they will tell you that Star Trek changed their lives. And they don't just... Mm-hmm. They, mostly they don't come up and say... Star Trek really changed my life. I mean, they come up and they have stories. They can tell you about, I was watching this and this one thing opened my eyes. Or I was watching this and this one thing changed my life. Mm-hmm. Do you have one or maybe two in particular that are like, you know, I will never forget. Someone told me this and this happened. Yeah, I mean, I've got, I've got one right off. And it's it's not that dramatic of a story, but when you think of it, it's impressive. One one person said that uh, they lived in, uh, I guess, East Berlin when when there was the wall, and uh, they knew people would sneak, I guess, tapes through the wall, and that was. I mean, I, I don't know if I, I I swear I heard them say it was a crime punishable by death. So I mean, the fact that people would risk so much for a TV show. And there have been other stories like it mm-hmm. um, where people would risk so much or put so much value into a TV show. Those are the things, I mean, that's, that's a lot of the impetus for doing this on, on my end, at least, is like, really? What? H- hold on. I get that it's a good show. I get that there's messages. And I do find it very inspirational. But why would you risk so much, your, your life maybe, or your livelihood, or whatever the case is? And, and that's, that's what I hope... Uh, to, I mean, to some degree, I've already gained that through my other experiences and explorations. But I want to re-explore that again and perhaps open that window, that door for other people. Do you think that there is uh, kind of pressure on you? Like, I, I, I think that anybody who's met you, anybody who's kind of been around you at conventions and stuff like that, they, they get that you are a part of this you know, even if you say, well, I was a Star Wars fan most of my life and now I'm kind of rediscovering Star Trek. Um, I think they get that you're genuine and you're you're into this. But do you feel like there is a pressure that you have to do this? You know, I, I've gone through many uh, stages. You know, my father has been uh, gone for over 20 years now. And, and I, you know, I wrestled with a lot of 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 uh, you can call them daddy issues almost. Um, <laughs> did my father love me? Was Star Trek a different family? Did did the were the fans a, a different family for him? And I, I, I jumped through a lot of jealousy uh, issues. But I've I really have come to terms. I you know I, I, I spent ten years doing a documentary called Trek Nation, um, which really allowed me to explore these issues and of course explore the phenomenon of Star Trek. For many years, I, I really kind of 
did consider it uh, a burden, but I, I really came to terms um, with uh, the fact that I wasn't competing with all the fans, and I wasn't competing with this other family called Star Trek. Uh, I ended up having all these brothers and sisters. They were all just part of my family. So a huge weight was lifted off my shoulder when I kind of realized that. And now this burden that I carry, it, it's not a burden. What a fantastic burden to have to, to want to carry on a vision of tomorrow where everyone works together for the greater good. You know, it's, I'm not putting down Star Wars um, or any other sci-fi for that matter. But <laughs> that is, that is a, a wonderful, fantastical idea in a fantasy land. You know, and, and carrying that on would be, I'm sure, a lot of fun. But this one instills me with pride every day because people want to live in that future. And so I'm just so proud to, to carry it on. I mean, it, this sounds like a lot of talk, but it's genuine. I swear to God, I love this vision that my father created. And I consider it my own vision. And it's something I, I'm doing my damnedest to, to carry on. John jokingly mentioned um, Lost in Space earlier. And we can talk about Lost in Space, or we could talk about, uh, I don't know, we could talk about Gunsmoke, or we could talk about any number of television shows that were on um, around the same time, if not at the exact same time. There's a philosophy, certainly, to Star Trek, thank goodness, because otherwise our show would be stupid. Um, <laughs> do you, I, while I know your dad had a vision, was he making one for the ages, or was he making a TV show? That's a great question, and, and, and that's something that I've wrestled with, too, because this, this, this issue of my father having a vision and, and, and being you know, a genius and prophesizing this, this future that we might live in one day, it, 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 it got too big for me um, when I was much younger. Uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you on a little tangent backwards. I'm sorry. And it was one of the, the uh, topics in the documentary I did. It was something that I really strive to to discover for myself, my father was put up on this pedestal, you know, almost like a Greek god. And how does, how does a son, let alone anyone else, identify with someone like that? How do they connect? Mm -hmm. So part of the journey was to, uh, certainly not to knock him down, but to find the man behind the myth, you know, uh, find his faults and follies. And that was an important part of the journey. So I, I really wanted to go out and, and learn the good, the bad, and the ugly. And once I did that, and once I heard some of these stories which certainly weren't, well, I guess one might argue the case, but I was going to say certainly weren't horrific. Um, they just made him a human being. And I know that sounds ridiculous to say because, of course, he was a human being, but in this discovery, I had to connect with that. And once I did, I was able to love him more. I was able to connect with him more. And my hope is that with the audience members out there who watch Star Trek and put him up on that pedestal, I think when you put someone on a pedestal, you can't necessarily connect. You can say, boy, they're amazing. Boy, they're, they're incredible. But I could never be like them. Once you're able to see the human in them, you say, oh, well, not only do they make all the same mistakes I do, but they were still able to get this great idea out there and still able to inspire people. And you know what? Maybe I can, too. Does that make it kind of okay uh, with you then when we occasionally hit a show and go, eh, no. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know what? I'm a little surprised uh, that um, in, in obviously hearing you guys talk about the show, when you analyze things, you, you pick up a lot of things I don't, which I love. And then there's a lot of times where you actually ask the question that I 
that I or we've all we've all said we should ask every time. And it makes me think, and I realize, you know what? There wasn't a hard over the head message in that episode. You know, so it's really interesting how how deep you can look into an episode and maybe have a, a, a strong message and, and how deeply you can look in and sometimes not. I've, I've really kind of enjoyed that process that you guys have brought out. Hey, uh, speaking of process, I want to kind of revisit something that we talked about a little bit earlier, which is, you know, a lot of people are interested in how we actually do the show and your level of involvement in it. So I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit and just talk about um, – well, we're going to show the audience how the sausage is made, if you will. Um, Nothing kinky, so, though, okay? I, I know, yeah. We'll, we'll keep we, we don't want another explicit rating, do we? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, for those who don't know, Ken is in Buffalo, New York, and I'm in Los Angeles. And Rod, you normally are between Los Angeles and San Diego, but right now you're traveling. and. Yes. You do that a few times a year. You'll be gone for a few weeks or whatever. But uh, we record the show on Skype, and pretty much every single show, you are listening in on Skype. So we kind of make a joke about how you're not on the show, but really you are in every show because you're on Skype listening in. Every now and then you will text us, or uh, the big thing is Voxer. Ken, you and I were talking about this in an interview one time, that Voxer is our primary mode of communication. Um, It's this little app that allows us to uh, walkie-talkie and text and send photos and all of that stuff. And uh, I would say anywhere from a minimum of a few times a week to sometimes several times a day we're talking about the show we're planning the show we're sharing ideas uh hey did you notice this thing and so you are intimately involved in the show like you said you may not watch it as much as we do um just because we're going through and taking notes in kind of a different way um but i i remember we might have talked about this ken um one other time but rod you were on a plane coming back from australia and you were sending us notes about an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Apparently, so, I'd, I'd actually already missed that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, think you I were sent you all that. these notes, and I was like, oh, can you guys talk about this, this? You're like, oh, yeah, we could, but we already recorded it. Already did it. <laughs> but you know what? That's why we have a supplemental. Yeah. Uh, are, are there moments in our show or ideas or anything that have surprised you or, or made you look at an episode in a different way? You know, absolutely, and and it's gonna suck because I can't necessarily recall that particular episode. But I, I, when I listen to this, first of all, you guys watch the show over and over. I listen to you guys over and over, and I do pick up something that I didn't think of fairly often. Um, again, you are the right people for the job because I would not be able to pick out the things you guys do and take the the point of view that you take. Uh, but I, I can say that there there was one episode that really struck me. And it was one of the ones that you guys, I don't want to put words in your mouth, said like it was kind of a not one of your favorites or you didn't really know where to go or you didn't have too much to say about it. And that was Miri. Mm-hmm. Remember Miri? Oh, I think we yeah. had plenty to say about it. <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> well, the most positive. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, I, I, I was, I don't want to say I love the concept just because of what uh, the, to- the subject matter is, but uh, the, the idea that uh, Kirk you know, goes down to this planet and he finds all these kids that are, are well, they're, they're 300 years old, 
but they're all kids. They still have the mind of a child. Mm-hmm. And it's the, uh, it, it was this, this thing that I just kind of went back in my head with because I, you know, I, I think it was, oh God, I can't say, did, did, did they really, there was a scene in there where Kirk leaves with Miri and is it insinuated that he's going to go talk to her about the birds and the bees or perhaps no, there's, maybe there's something fairly a bit? There's something fairly ambiguous about it. Rand, Yeoman Rand, who is attracted to Kirk, it's been made clear over a few episodes. Yeoman Rand um, it, it seems to be a bit uncomfortable with, with the flirtatious nature of the relationship uh-huh. between Kirk and Miri. And, and the ambiguity comes when... Uh, what, what Kirk is leaves the room with her. Well, no, Bone says something like, She's older than all of us put together. Kind of makes you think or something. But it's mm-hmm. like, it's like mm-hmm. well, what, what is it making me think, doctor? Because, ooh, if, if yeah. I'm thinking what you're thinking, I'm thinking. And if I'm not, though, then it's still just, yeah. Yeah. I went a little nutty at the end of that episode, actually, about the, about the <laughs> flirtation. It's fun to take these thoughts, though, to, and let me finish my sentence before anyone boos me, take these thoughts to the next degree. I mean, beyond the episode, if you just keep thinking about it, where... Not necessarily specifically to the episode, but if there was a, a person that had a, a childlike look, or let's just say teens, and, and let's say 15, 16, but they were 300 years old and had the mindset of a 300-year-old person, whatever that would be, wise, sophisticated, intelligent, it, it's, it's just a weird thing to think about because it, part of me says, okay, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't feel right. That that. No, you don't want to date her and you don't want to take that next step beyond dating her. However, is it maturity? Are you if they're if they've got the maturity of a 300-year-old, then it should be okay, right? Well, if if, if they're 300 years old, they're it, definitely above the age limit. <laughs> it's just it's this is what I love about these particular episodes cuz it you can play these games in your head and really kind of freak yourself out. Well, mm-hmm. if Mary had had that level of maturity, then yeah, you'd have something there. I mean, there's a there's, it's been years since I read it, but Interview with the Vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the vampires, I guess it's uh, Lestat, turns Claudia into a vampire when she's five years old. So her body stops growing at that point. Her look never changes because she's immortal, but her brain continues. And so I think when she meets her end in the book, she's something like 86 years old. And, and it's, it's torture her entire life that she, she matures. She becomes a woman. She becomes an adult, but she's in this child's body. So she doesn't have the full, you know, the full physical experience, obviously. And, and she can't talk with anybody on her level because, you know, adults think she's an idiot child. Now, could you see beyond that? Could you fall in love? With a five-year-old? No. Yes. Well, but plus, I'm saying, I'm plus saying, she's if, a vampire. If, she's going to kill me. Right. Sure, but the, taking the vampire out of it. it this is a fun <laughs> discussion. Take the vampire out of it. Yeah, and yeah. let's just say she has the maturity of an adult. And you can have conversations like you would with another adult. And the idea is, you know, when we fall in love with someone, we fall in love with who they are, not what they are. Right. Do you, it, it, you know, it, it's believe me, I, I'm not out there saying we should all go for five year olds. That's the opposite of what I'm saying. No, the, I'm the difficult, it's a, it's a crazy thought. Honestly, the difficult part of what you're talking about, I would say the five year old is way too far. But if you want to go back to Mary for a second, there is actually a problem that I think is fed by every magazine and most TV shows out there. And that may sound crazy and over the top, but stick with me. 
we all came of age about the same time in our lives, 12, 13 years old. And at the point, at that point, we're surrounded by 13, 14 year old girls, right? And mm-hmm. so th- there's, there's a thing that like inside when you're 12 or 13 years old and you see a 14 year old girl, you're like, oh, look, a 14 year old girl. And that's why most magazines and a lot of TV shows will put 14, 15, 16 year old girls and present them as, oh, she's so sexy. She'll think you're sexy if you buy this. And it's like you're, you're, you're basically prostituting a 15 or 16 year old. Yeah, yeah. And and but the thing is, we're all we're so hardwired when that happened and then it's constantly being reinforced by both movies and TV shows and and magazine ads. Magazine ads are especially the worst it seems to me. Um I mean, you, what you honestly what you're bringing up is creepy and awful sounding. And yes. It really is something that we should think about because there's a reason that we would even have that conversation. It's because it's constantly being represented to us. Is it mm-hmm. wrong? Yes. Is it illegal? Absolutely. Is what you're saying sensible? Sadly, kinda. Because I don't, I don't feel like in a lot of ways we're ever allowed to get past it. Sure. Are you sure you don't think you could do like one of these episodes or all of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 each episode would go into a tangent, and the truth is, I, I definitely don't know what I'm talking about. And I love. <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love throwing out the question. Oh, okay. I don't always have like a solid answer. I, I feel like I can look at both sides and say, yeah, I see it from this point of view and I see it from this point of view. And usually I don't end up anywhere except somewhere in far, far Neverland. Oh, that's great, man. Just uh, shirk the responsibility of the work on us. I get exactly. it. I get it. Yeah, I understand now. <laughs> or, or better still, send us those questions and then we'll be the disgusting perv saying, no, seriously, think about it. I know she's 13, but come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going to get, a, I'm going to get a lot of uh, email on this one, aren't I? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think it, it, it is a – we could have done the whole episode just about that question because it, it is kind of tough to contemplate. You know, are we measuring maturity by something physical or by time spent or by um, uh, maturity. mental maturity? You know, the, yeah. these these teenagers as they, or the kids, even preteens, as they were presented in Miri, um, were mentally stuck. So we are saying something about the brain's ability to develop over time and take in information, synthesize it into, I guess there's no better word for it, but wisdom. You know, you could feed these kids information, but they lack the wisdom to be able to put it to use or learn from their past mistakes. You know, they they were eating all of they, They were exhausting their food supply. They didn't even understand that. Right. You know. So I just figured out what you guys do for me. You organize that? my thoughts into words, sentences, and you give it a structure that I cannot do. <laughs> <laughs> well, glad to be here, sir. And we'll just let everybody else listen to your thoughts. There you go. Yeah, no. very cool. There you go. Um, and, and hey, one thing real quick uh, before we let you go, because I know that you do have to go. Um, the cage. Um, being reused in the menagerie. You know, we talked about uh, that episode and how interesting from uh, excuse me, a production standpoint that was to recycle a show that had at that point not been seen um, and to good or bad effect. And um, the story is that they had basically run out of scripts at that point. And they were going to reach this point in production where they had a hole that they needed to get some episodes out so they didn't lose their 
schedule. They, they otherwise mm-hmm. would have had no show to air. Um, and that's what I had always heard. And you said that you had kind of a different thought about that. Well, I, I think you're probably right. I was always under the impression, and I literally can't recall how I got under this impression. And maybe it's just because of the other stories I've heard of my father. My father loved sticking it to people um, in the sense that he'd come up with an idea and it was shot down. And then later on, you know, millions of fans loved it. Uh, you know, one example was, you know, there was an episode, and again, I, my Star Trek knowledge is not as good as many out there, but there, there was a, the, the famous belly button story where there was a belly button shown in an episode and all the censors said that couldn't be done. So they had to take that scene out. Um, later on in one of his other pilots, another show that he did, he actually sort of had this alien woman and he gave her two belly buttons just to stick it to the censors. Um, and so what I thought with the cage was I thought that, you know, this was my father. He, he did the cage that was his beginning of the series. That was his concept. That was his birth of Star Trek, his vision. I, I, I was under the assumption that he just really wanted to get out there. And not that my father was a, a jerk, but I think he just really wanted to get it out there and say, you know, this was my vision. I want everyone to see it. And this is a creative way to get it out there. I, I have no doubt that there must have been some satisfaction in doing that. Sure. And, and I also love, though, that it kind of created a demand. And then when your father was doing the lecture circuit and colleges and conventions and all of this stuff in the 70s and 80s, that he would take that show with him and run that as, uh, as part of the programming. And I bet it sparked a lot of great discussion. Yeah, yeah. There, there was actually one other thing that you guys, uh, I think The Man Trap was an episode. And when I was watching the episode on TV, um, I think I sent you guys a note on it, but I think I sent it too late. I, I swear to God, and I've never heard this, but after watching this episode again, there, right at the beginning, I, I think it was like a minute and 45 seconds into it, it's on the bridge, and there's some background chatter over the intercom. And I swear that's my father's voice. And since then, I feel like I've heard it in a few other episodes. And the, the truth is, I've just got to call someone like Mike Okuda or, or Richard Arnold and find out from them if they know if that was, that was his voice. Because if anyone goes back and listens to definitely, I think, The Man Trap or any of the episodes where there's chatter in the background, if anyone's heard my father speak, it, it sounds very close to his voice. So I've, I'll, I'll see if I can find that out for uh a later, a later trivia update for you guys. Cool. You heard it here first. Um, the, yeah, I, we all knew about the, uh, uh, the moment in Charlie X that the chef who calls up from the galley is your father. That one um, definitely is. Yeah. That's yeah. But that, that would be really cool if we could pinpoint a few others. That would be great. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for your time, Rod. Absolutely, guys. It's, it's so short, but sweet. You know what the good news <laughs> is, is that I guess I get to come on every now and then to some degree whenever you guys, whenever you guys will have me at least oh. <laughs> it's kind of your show but we'll see what we can do yeah we'll see if we can slot you in sometime yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll have my people check with your people alright <laughs> <laughs> hey do they use Voxer because I hear that too <sighs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot man hey guys thanks for the opportunity to be on here and, and uh, everyone who's listening thank you for listening it's uh, it's I think something we're we're all very proud of. And, and again, 
uh, as much as John and Ken say uh, uh, I'm as involved as they are, it's, it's, it's kind of not true. I'm definitely involved, but they are really the guys who make Mission Log happen, and uh, they deserve 98.74% of the credit. Hey, I'll cut you down to 98.5. We'll be fine with that. That's cool. Incoming transmission. Hi, my name is Kayla Iacovino, and Dagger of the Mind is my favorite original series episode. I have a myth from the episode that I'm hoping you guys can set straight. As you probably know, the Vulcan mind meld makes its first appearance in this episode. But what I've read is that the Vulcan mind meld was originally created as an alternative to performing hypnosis, and that Gene Roddenberry didn't want to risk actually hypnotizing viewers at home, and so instead had Spock do a Vulcan mind meld. Is there any truth to that? Good question, Kayla. Um, So here's the thing. We talked a little bit about uh, the hypnosis issue in our episode of Dagger of the Mind, and we talked about it in the respect that when they made the episode, um, there, there was this idea that uh, they would hypnotize Dr. Van Gelder to try to figure out what was going on at Tantalus. Now, enter Spock, and they said, well, we, we don't want somebody to do the hypnosis unless it is something under a medical uh, uh, construct unless there is a doctor who is, I guess, a doctor of hypnosis, hypnology. I don't. What do you call that? Um, <laughs> so we we don't want to go there. Therefore, we will come up with this other thing called the Vulcan mind meld, which will have the same uh, plot effect where we get the information out of Van Gelder that we need to get, but we're not doing something that is maybe a little medically questionable, shall we say? So. That's the context that we answered uh, uh, the, the hypnosis issue within our show. Now, Kayla's question is pointing at something that I had heard a few times before as well, which is, did they avoid doing the hypnosis because Gene Roddenberry or somebody on the production staff was worried that they would actually hypnotize the audience by presenting this on screen. Now, I don't know how that would actually work. If you're talking about the old, you know, what you see in movies, either the guy swinging the watch back and forth, and I assume they don't have watches on the Enterprise in the 23rd century, or you do the uh, the 60s version where you have the spinning uh, wheel, you know, with the, the kind of psychedelic-looking story. Well, they show that on Laughing all the time. Um, so I don't know if that's what they had in mind physically as a gag to show that somebody was being hypnotized Uh, or it could have just been really boring if you have somebody talking their subject down from a hundred counting backwards and hopefully then the audience isn't falling asleep at that point so my point is this that story to me is apocryphal I don't have any evidence one way or the other to say definitively yes or definitively no that's why they abandoned the hypnosis and went with the Vulcan mind meld. It, it smells like an apocryphal story to me, though, because I think that there would have been a visual way to get this across. You know, I, I'll throw out another theory, and I'll just say that maybe somebody in the production staff said, well, hypnosis is kind of a uh, it, it, it's kind of a technique that isn't uh, 100% medically sound. There are people who do it and there are people who say that they get good benefits from it. Um, But it's kind of a little bit like hocus pocus. And do we want to show that 
on the medically advanced version of the future that we're showing? Does yeah. it really fit in with the Enterprise? Whatever the reason, too, it's it's awfully awesome that they decided to do the mind meld instead because that has served the franchise mm-hmm. so incredibly well. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, just like the Vulcan neck pinch, you know, uh, that was done because Winter Nimoy said, I don't think Spock would pistol whip somebody with the butt of a phaser. Let's come <laughs> up with something a little more elegant, right. uh, a little more in character for him to do. By the way, so, I got something else for you really quickly that has almost nothing to do with uh, Star Trek. Oh, great. I, Bring I, it on. I ate at a restaurant called Tantalus this past weekend. <laughs> yes, you did. And then uh, and then you left and they wiped out all memory yes. of uh, of your meal. You see, I, I, I don't know that that's what happened, but I really can't be certain. <laughs> or actually, they just serve you horrible, horrible food. And right as you're about to complain, they turn on the device and they tell you that what you had was wonderful and you will leave a positive Yelp review. You know, that's, you know, what's interesting about what you just said is the food I had was wonderful and I did leave a positive Yelp review. <laughs> it works. Huh. It works. Yeah. The Dr. Adams was right. <laughs> the Tentalist device and steak. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it was a burger. It was pretty good. I won't lie. Although oh, maybe, maybe I am lying because who knows? Oh, man. Oh, no. Can't go anywhere. Can't do anything. What a tangled web. Do you want to uh, do you want to address the shuttle gra- uh, shuttlecraft conundrum? Do I? <laughs> so in our brief so far history of doing the mission log, there yeah. is one topic that has generated the most amount of listener mail. Um, we have received emails, we have received Twitter messages, we have received Facebook messages, and this is why we have all of those ways for you to contact us. Um, although I'd encourage all of you who are leaving a message, read what the person wrote before you, because very often it's the same thing. Um, but there's one thing that everybody pointed out, and that is the lack of a shuttlecraft in the enemy within. Yeah. Um, so why don't you fill us in on what happened in the enemy within that could have been solved with a shuttlecraft? Well, there's a problem with the transporter, isn't there? There is. That's it. There's a problem with <laughs> right. the transporter. And so everybody, everybody who wrote in, and I will admit this did not even cross my mind. Everybody who wrote in said, why didn't they just take the shuttlecraft? And the only thing right. I can figure is they don't have one yet because we haven't seen one mentioned to that point. Now, um, when we get to... The Menagerie, we do see a shuttlecraft, but it's a shuttlecraft that comes from Starbase Eleven, or at right. least in the in the in the remastered, you know, re rejiggered, redone uh, DVDs, re presentations, re representations. Right. Uh, right. It's obvious that that comes from uh, Starbase Eleven. But as far as right. we know, there is no shuttlecraft on the Enterprise at that time. Well, and that lets our audience in on a little bit of the the kind of fake construct that we have on the mission log. And the construct is that you and I, Ken, uh, along with our audience, are watching this for the first time. Right. Um, now, now that we've never seen the episodes before, that we're judging them as if this is the first time. So that's why we're going in broadcast order. Right. And we try, as hard as it is, we try not to bring in reference from other episodes. Right. And, and, Unless and, we're looking backward. And yeah. if you're watching it the first time, you know, this is 1966. This is episode, which one was The Naked Time? It's like I think it was aired like fourth in order or something like that. Well, yeah. no, fourth, well, I can't remember. Anyway, it's, fa- it's fairly <laughs> early. early in the run, right? It would not be, 
most people sitting there watching it wouldn't say, well, that's a big ship. Don't they have a smaller ship? Right. <laughs> so right. it didn't feel like a giant gap at the time. It feels like a giant gap years later where you know that they've got a shuttlecraft that they could have taken down there, except, of course, I mean, we just have to assume that they didn't have it at that point. Right. And that is another important thing to kind of say about our show is that when we're prepping Mission Log, we're trying to we're trying to stick with what we are given on screen and in that script. You know, we could speculate all day long about why they didn't do this, why they did do this, why is the color of that button red and not yellow. We could do that all day long, but we're trying to go with only what we've been given by the writer. Now, the point of Mission Log, the discussion, the philosophical back and forth, try to mine out the messages. Well, Ken, that's where you and I come in and we just sort of pour out whatever we're thinking yeah. about it. But when it comes to the trivia, the minutia, uh, you know, at a certain point, we kind of have to step away from it and go, well, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't necessarily fit with our mission. Yeah. I mean, solving the logic problems of a given episode isn't really, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm fine saying it was busted. I'm I'm absolutely fine saying, okay, there was no shuttlecraft, or if there was a shuttlecraft, it was broken. Because that's not really, you know. I mean, I've wondered a time or two, what was the yellow ore? Because it it was apparently the yellow ore that messed up the transporter. But, I mean, have they never come across this yellow ore that can apparently mess up the transporter? Right. Why did that happen? I mean, it would be very easy... We would never get to the messages, the the morals, you know, the philosophy, the whole thing, if we spent the whole time saying, and another thing, that that Mm -hmm. that 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 garment he was wearing looked like a shower curtain, which it was. Maybe it was. And uh, and and if you're going to put on a hazmat suit, should you really take off the glove? Right. I mean, you know, I mean, we could we would never get to the uh, we would never get to you know what what Rod wanted us to do. Right. And we spend all of our time going, no, no, you don't pass stars in space. <laughs> because you don't, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, I, I will tell you, whenever there is a Star Trek question, though, about logic, timeline, all of that stuff, I have one source. One source embodied by two people. And that would be Mike and Denise Okuda. And they wrote kind of the ultimate Star Trek encyclopedia. In fact, it is called the Star Trek Encyclopedia. And the entry about the Galileo 7, first aired in 1967, they say in one sentence there, um, well, two sentences, the Enterprise shuttlecraft made its first appearance in this episode. Earlier episodes, like The Enemy Within, did not use the shuttle because it had not been built until this point. Now, they're talking about from a production point of view, that the the physical prop had not been built yet. But it does raise an interesting question. And I, I tried to do a little bit of research on this at the uh, Roddenberry archives. If you look at the original uh, writer's guide where Gene Roddenberry describes the Enterprise, he says, you know, the Enterprise is this huge uh, ship in space, you know, it's massive. It, it contains all of these people and all of these facilities and services, and it can land on a planet, though we won't do that. Okay. Um, and then he says, we have a transporter to get people to and from short distances, like within line of sight from the ship to the planet. Hmm. I couldn't find anything that said shuttlecraft in the writer's guide at, at that point, anyway. Now, there may be something that turns up later, 
then the other question that I had is if you go back to Matt Jeffrey's designs of the Enterprise and those designs that were approved by Gene Roddenberry and everybody else working on the show, does he say this big hangar deck here, this is where a shuttlecraft goes? And did everybody around go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great, but then forget to tell the writers that? So, you know, there could be some logical question here about the timeline of production we know that the shuttlecraft prop did not exist yet when they did the, the enemy within. But I think the real question people are asking is conceptually, did they know about this yet? And they may not have. That, that may just be the, the luck of the draw there. If it was in the right – see, this is, this is where you just don't – this is where mm-hmm. you just don't play this, though, because, okay, so let's say there was no shuttlecraft. According to what you just said about Gene Roddenberry, there was no shuttlecraft mentioned. They can either teleport, which, of course, they couldn't do because of the ore that was screwing everything up and splitting mm-hmm. Kirk in two, or they could land the ship on the planet. Well, hey, here's an idea. Why didn't they land the ship on the planet? Oh, wait, <laughs> right. I know, because then you wouldn't have a show. See, right. it, it just, right. you, can't, you can't do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I know you yeah. can do that and it's fine to do that, but you can't do that because you'll never, <laughs> you know, you'll never get to the good stuff. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, I agree. That's my thinking. Hey, I okay. got an email from somebody um, who was a listener to my other show. Um, Go ahead. Plug it. It's okay. Well, I could do that if you want to. I have another show that I do called Mac OS Can. It's a daily uh, Apple news and news related to Apple news show. Les has been a listener to that show. He has also started listening to um, Mission Log. And he actually wrote in after we did The Naked Time, again with The Naked Time. Everybody (laughs) doesn't love something, but nobody doesn't love Naked Time, John. I know. (laughs) Um, Just heard your comments on Star Trek's The Naked Time and thought I'd point something out. When Sulu brandishes his foil and grabs Uhura, he refers to her as a fair maiden. She replies, sorry, neither, meaning she is dark-skinned and has had sex. Being black and on TV in 1967 was a big deal, but being unmarried, having sex, well, let's just say that line probably slipped by the censors. I got to say hats off. Cause, yeah. Because I did totally, I, I, and I even noticed that she said something, and I tried to rewind it to hear what she said, but I couldn't hear what she said, and I figured it wasn't that big a deal. And in the story, it wasn't that big a deal, but this goes back to, you know, the cages, a fable you heard in childhood or any number of like, just, you know, kind of quick throwaway line that you think, ah, wow, does that mean anything? Does it not mean anything? And it turns out it does. This is not just her being some, you know, saucy lass. This is, hey, guess what we're doing (laughs) in the 23rd century? Um, uh, people of different races are working side by side. They have important jobs. You know, she's she's higher up in ranks than a lot of people on the Enterprise. Um, and so it's cool that she's black. It's cool that she's a woman and she's in both of these positions. And by the way, we're also doing it yeah. with, without the benefit of marriage. And I'm not saying you, you can argue and, and you can argue whether you're a religious person or not a religious person, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It was just a statement of fact. That, you know, here we are 200 some odd years later, and this is what's happening. Right. Uh, well, and hats off also to uh, one of our Facebook uh, friends, Joseph Marchione. I think I got it right, Marchione, uh, who brought up the same exact line. Uh, I'll protect you, fair maiden, or her reply is sorry, neither, saying that she is neither fair-skinned or a maiden. In a time when they were still showing the bedrooms of married people as having single beds on TV, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and... It, to me, you know, I, I think I've said before, um, 
and some of the interviews that we've done that I typically will watch uh, Star Trek and prep for the show at least once with subtitles on. So I make sure that there aren't any lines or, or names or spellings or things that get past me. And somehow this one got past me as well. And I was thinking, well, maybe I was just so fixated on Sulu. This is Sulu's moment. It's his fantasy. So it doesn't matter whether he thinks someone is a fair maiden or not. He's just out of his head. But that follow-up line, as these people have pointed out, is so great because in two words, you have expressed a lot about Uhura. And it, it may, you know, again, just for the censors at the time, they just didn't pick up on it. And uh, I'm glad they didn't because it left us with a really golden piece of dialogue from that show. So this is the kind of thing that we do on the supplemental shows. We'll have, you know, someone interesting on, like Rod Roddenberry, who we uh, thank again for coming on this week. And then, of course, uh, John and I will just talk. <laughs> and As if that's less interesting, right? <laughs> and we will have, of course, feedback from you, which we would love to get. I know we mention it on every episode of uh, the Mission Log, but we would love to hear feedback from you uh, that we can play right here as well. John, do you have in front of you the many various ways people can get in touch with us? I actually do on both Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at the handle Mission Log Pod. And if you would rather leave us a voicemail that we might use on a show, try us at Skype, Mission Log Pod, or you can call us on your old style 20th century communicator, 323-522-5641. Remember, anything you say may be used on a future episode. And now it's time to do my favorite dance, the Kirk Out. <laughs> now leaving nerdist.com